0: All right, well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I am one of your hosts, Josh Patterson, and with me today is Marty Frederick. Marty, what's going on, bro?
1: Hey, Josh, how's it going? It's uh, it's Memorial Day today.
0: That is true. It is Memorial Day today, and I almost forgot. I know that sounds really bad. Like people are already turning off the podcast because I said that. But uh, <laughs> with COVID and everything being so like, you know, jacked up and crazy, I don't. I never know what day of the week it is. So that's
1: all right. But you know, like it's Memorial Day is a great day. Uh it's it's a beautiful day here in the Chicago suburbs. And so we're gonna be grilling ribs out and um, you know, just enjoying things as a family. So I'm looking forward to that.
0: Yeah, nice, man. That sounds good. We're not gonna be doing those things. <laughs> it is a nice day out, but uh Noelle is here, my wife and and Brandon is off today. So uh he's here as well, but we'll probably just hang out and do stuff. Tomorrow is Noelle's birthday and oh. the following day is Brandon's birthday. So I'm sure we oh. might do something for that. Very nice. Yeah. So, but today it's actually kind of perfect that, uh, today is Memorial day. Cause the, the conversation we're going to be having today uh, is very fitting, I think, uh, for Memorial day holiday. And so with that in mind, we should probably bring our, our guest in here. Um, because we are not alone. And so with us today is Kevin Miller. Kevin, how's it going? Yeah,
2: hey, going, going really well.
0: Good. Well, thank well, you so much for, for being here and hanging out with us today. We appreciate it.
2: Yeah, yeah, thanks. Good to be here.
1: And so, Kevin, we have a question that we like to ask every guest that comes on the podcast. Um, knowing where you're from, I think I have an idea of what your answer is going to be. Um, but the question we ask everybody is, who is your favorite ice hockey team?
2: Well, I grew up in Saskatchewan in canada and uh we i grew up in the uh the um, uh what would you call the dynasty years of the edmonton oilers and so uh i mean it it has to be the oilers always will be even though uh you know they kind of break your heart more often than not these days (laughs) yeah
0: (laughs) they do but there i mean Connor mcdavid is amazing to say the least yeah i think that's a solid choice
2: yeah
1: i'm just hoping hockey comes back this year i'm hoping that you can see some good games.
2: Yeah, I think there may be games with not many fans, but who knows? I mean, it's uh yeah.
0: Yeah, that's that's yeah. kind of what it looks like. They're doing this weird like 24 team playoff bracket thing where even like the Montreal Canadiens are in the playoffs and they won like 15 games <laughs> all season. <laughs> yeah. So, but it'll be it'll be interesting to say the least. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, interestingly enough, though Kevin, we did not bring you on the podcast today to talk about hockey. Um, <laughs> and so, before we get into today's topic, can you just tell us about yourself, what your faith upbringing is, and wh- who you are, and what kind of things you do?
2: Sure, um, I'm a I'm a filmmaker. I'm also an author, so I kind of split my time between doing films and working on books. I'm probably focusing more on my books these days than on films. But um, yeah, as somebody who's a freelancer, you uh, you know you have to do a lot of different things to uh, keep the lights on. So that's what I do. I grew up uh, in a small town in in the actually on a farm outside of a small town in the prairies in Canada, and uh, I kind of stumbled into evangelical Christianity um, largely due to the influence of some of my neighbors. Um, one of my best friends growing up uh, was a Mennonite kid, and and Mennonite I don't I'm not talking about people who dress in black and ride buggies. Just uh, they were, you know, uh, otherwise you would never guess they're Mennonites. It just that happened to be their faith, and I. I got invited to Bible camp when I was nine years old. And that's when I heard the gospel for the first time, you know, the typical gospel presentation, um, which included, you know, uh, basically saying yes to this would be a good idea if you don't want to go to hell when you die. And so it's, I always say that it's amazing that a decision you make when you're nine years old ends up defining the rest of your life. So, you know, um, I, at some points in my life, I, you know, went along with that decision, but other times I have been working against it. Um, and, uh, so yeah, it's, you gotta be careful, uh, what you, uh, teach the kids cause you just never know how it's going to affect them. But, uh, yeah, so we ended up, I, my family, actually, my grandfather was a minister. Um, he was even a chaplain who landed in, uh, Normandy shortly after D-Day and, and, um, uh, You know, went through some of the worst of the war in the process of which he really lost his faith in God. But, you know, back then when you train for a career, it's not like you can go and, you know, it wasn't as easy to switch careers. So he ended up being a minister for the rest of his life, even though he didn't really believe in God. But he felt that religion was a positive socializing force and he was a real, you know, pillar of the community type guy. Uh, who who tried to you know encourage people to live good moral lives, but that was about the substance of his faith. My my family and I we ended up uh, starting to attend a, an evangelical church, a Mennonite church. I went off to Bible college um, and kind of got sort of brainwashed into thinking um, in a certain direction. Um, that I, again, you know, I end up spending the next you know decade or two trying to extricate myself from uh, you know a lot of. Um, you know, just ways of thinking. And uh, yeah, so I don't know, you kind of stumble into these things and then um, uh, sort of spend a lot of time trying to deprogram from them. At least that's, that's sort of been the story of my life.
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's, huh. That's really interesting to to hear some of your background. I, my first introduction to your work was, uh, I watched your, the film you made, uh, Hellbound. Yeah. Um, and that was, that's a really, I love that movie. Um, I've shared it with many people, uh, where, where like in your journey, did that happen for you? Like, how did that, I know that's not what we're talking about today, but I'm just interested.
2: Yeah. Well, Hellbound was my directorial debut. I'd been working as a screenwriter for several years before that. Um, I think I started in film around 2003 and, um, I, uh, Hellbound, I'd I'd first gotten the idea for the film back in 2008. I was working uh, as I was editing a book for a friend of mine named Brad Jursak. It's a book called uh, "Her Gates Will Never Be Shut: Heaven, Hell, and the New Jerusalem." Oh, he's reaching up and grabbing it off his shelf. Uh,
0: Yeah, right there. (laughs) Yeah, there you
2: go. Yeah, so I edited that for Brad, and it was such an eye-opening experience for me. I'd been spending a lot of time with Brad and Ron Dart and some other friends of mine. Uh, We'd been doing a lot. We'd go on hikes in the mountains all the time and talk about all sorts of things and. And it was like I was at a point where I mean, i I'd been working on this documentary, Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed, which was looking at intelligent design. And hmm. and it was in the process of really sorting through, um, you know, really a philosophy of science. And just it was almost like my world was being emptied of the supernatural um, in in a in a and by supernatural, I mean, sort of this magical, superstitious form of Christianity that I'd kind of been co-opted into. And. And in the midst of processing that and reading Brad's book, it was just sort of a part and parcel of me just deconstructing things. So that was in 2008. I didn't really find myself in a position um, to to be able to uh, work on a film that processed some of those things until uh, 2011. I'd been working on another documentary with uh, Kirk Cameron of all people and I got fired and, um, but I was still getting paid. So that was a good time to begin developing my own project and And really, I wanted to tackle the topic of hell because I kind of intuitively sensed that it was really the foundation for a lot of people's quote-unquote faith. That um, if you pull out that Jenga block of hell, the whole thing comes crashing down. And I thought that was really telling because, um, you know, it really raised the question of what is the good news? I mean, it seemed that the faith that I've been raised in, the good news was you don't have to go, you know, say this prayer and you won't have to go to hell when you die. But it's pretty puzzling when you read the whole book of Acts and don't see a single mention of hell in any of the first sermons preached by the earliest Christians. The good news is never framed that way. The good news is is framed in a completely different way, which has to do with escaping, um, you know, the tyranny of of death. You know, the good news is that death has been overcome because you know death is really the fear of death is is really the root of of I think everything evil in the world.
0: Mm. Sweet, yeah. Well, thanks for that, that background. That's helpful. It's also cool that you know Brad. Brad's an, an awesome guy. He's been a, a guest on, on this show before, and also I interact uh, with him through Jesus Collective. Okay, um, yeah. Which is cool, so that's neat. Thank you. Yep. Um, well, today we're, we want to talk about uh, your most recent documentary, and I don't exactly know how to say it, so please correct me. Um, it, it's Jesus USA, or I don't know. Oh, it's, it's just called
2: USA. <laughs> Yeah. you say it like you would say USA just add the je on the front so j e s u s a
0: okay perfect J-E-S, yeah j e s u s a and so i i think it's super creative because uh, for people who can't actually see this or picture it it's literally jesus and usa fused as one word um how like how did you come up with that name cuz i think it's brilliant <laughs> well,
2: you know it came up actually not far from where you live josh uh we were filming uh in virginia and we were probably midway through the film uh like midway through the shoot on the film and what was happening so the original title for the film we kind of came up with it as a bit of a joke but it kind of it became more serious as it went on was was the silence of the lamb singular and the idea was that there's these two competing images of jesus the lion and jesus the lamb and how come the lion is is it always seems like the lion version of jesus is the one that shows up to bless wars and to you know, uh, uh, create this scary vision of the future. And uh, so why is the lamb in silence? So that was what I was, uh, you know, kind of the idea we were working under. Still not sure if that was going to be our final title or not. But uh, it was, uh, you know, we'd interviewed quite a few people at this point. I think we were about to interview um, Diana Butler Bass. And uh, I was in the hotel room in the morning. And this, this thing of nationalism kept coming up is that why is christianity especially in america taken on this this violent form and it was always the issue of nationalism that people were mentioning as one of the root causes so it just struck me j or jesus and usa they share three letters in common and and i thought it was just a great way of showing the problem is that these two things jesus and america have been fused together in a way that you know you almost can't pronounce it so many people struggle to pronounce it but it becomes this entity unto itself um and so that's that's how it came to be
1: and that's interesting because in in as much as it's hard to pronounce what that is in many ways it's hard for people who are deep in deeply entrenched in that thought process to call it what it is and to kind of see what that looks like for themselves so they're within it they're like well I wouldn't know how to call this you know I'm just I'm just patriotic and that's it you know but and they go to church on Sunday right. and it's it's melded together so th- that that was really interesting and beautiful to me
2: yeah well, and it you know raised the question of where does jesus end and and my allegiance to the state begin, and how do these two things even fit together and and they're so seamless how do you how do you separate them um without you know losing one or the other and and so I think it raises a lot of interesting questions so the film like part of me struggles with the fact that maybe the title of the film um Creates the wrong expectation in people because I didn't start out the film trying to deal with the problem of nationalism. That's something that emerged in the filmmaking process. And I'm not trying to say that America is a special case in the history of the world, even though America kind of is a special case. So it's not like other countries um, or nations or the history of Christianity haven't struggled with this same issue. I mean, going right back to Rome, right? I mean, the minute Christianity becomes a legal entity and not just a legal entity but actually the official religion of the empire then it has to take on a different set of priorities which is going to fundamentally alter the faith and And Christianity's faced that challenge in every nation of the world in which it's existed you know it's either going to be becoming the handmaiden of the state or it's going to be challenging the state and paying the price and many times we you know, make the easier choice of just blessing the state so that we can, we can exist in peace within the state. But then we become complicit with all kinds of things that the state is doing. So, um, yeah. So I think the film, what I wanted to look at is particularly the problem of violence um, is how, how did the earliest Christians understand in particular the use of deadly force um, for Christians and uh, how are we supposed to manage our lives is spe- and i think this is specifically a problem for americans who find themselves you know christians in america who are the residents in you know the biggest superpower the world has ever seen and um you know how do you how do you kind of navigate your your way through that
1: yeah well and so as i was as i was watching the film i actually watched it uh last night with my family um and so my family and um my family is I would say they're not, they're not necessarily overly patriotic. Uh, they're not necessarily anti-violence, um, and I think it was an interesting perspective um, to, for each each person of my family to kind of watch and pull out different pieces of different things. And um, one of the one of the questions I that I think we all kind of got, and this is just kind of macro over the whole film, is um, as you were. Um, interviewing different people for the film and coming up with the different questions to ask them and those kinds of things. How did this film even, how did the idea for this film even really come to be as far as who was chosen to be talked to and all those different things? Because there it, it was, there was a definite, uh, like we've, so we've had Brian Zond uh, on the show before. We've had Greg Boyd on the show before uh, we've had Shane Clayborne on the show before um, And they all have that anti-violence bent to how they kind of go about things, which was so, so straight biblical to us as we talked to them. Um, But it was interesting to watch my family um, as they were, as they were posing different elements of different things throughout the show, throughout the movie. Um, You know, there were, there were certain things that my family like, Oh, I never, I never thought of it that way. When, um, when, when the story of Abraham is talked about and, Uh, The idea is posed that um, Abraham didn't need to almost uh, kill Isaac because God needed him to do that, but because Abraham needed to show that he was. And so this idea of that, like, so there's all these different things coming together, but I guess my, I guess I'm, I'm talking a lot, but my, my, my main question is, um, as you were thinking of different people to speak to for the making of this film. Um, what, what, what was sort of some of those, um, I don't know, I guess uh, qualifications you were looking for, like, you know, what was, what was the goal with all of that?
2: Well, you definitely, I mean, uh, whenever I'm trying to figure out the cast, so to speak for a documentary, it's, it's looking at, well, what are the various viewpoints that I want to explore or have expressed in the film? So uh, I knew, for instance, Brian, I knew Brian personally, and I had interacted with him a bit. And I knew the story of his pretty radical conversion away from a real J-E-S-U-S-A, rah, 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 um, you know, violent nationalism to, you know, the position he is now where I think, you know, I'm not sure if he would call himself a pacifist, but he definitely doesn't think that there's any role for Violence in the life of a Christian the same thing about Greg Boyd I knew that he had undergone that sort of thing and both of them had paid a price for that conversion And so I wanted to speak to other people as well. So that led me to Steve Watkins um, who was a former Navy SEAL who really Began the road away from violence while in the midst of combat in Iraq during the first Gulf War Uh, Dwight Ford is another uh, guy former like just a Marines Marine Who also saw action? Uh, who's now a pastor and who just uh, you know really does not feel that any goodness can come out of out of war. So I wanted to not just have a film where it's a battle of ideas because boy, well, we're sure sure seeing the uselessness of that in the whole COVID nineteen thing, where try and and uh, present information to somebody who believes in a conspiracy theory. You know, I mean, it's uh, I mean that's fuel for them, and so uh, it doesn't do anything to convert them away from the way of thinking. And so I think that. The same thing with this film is that we're very you know, emotionally entrenched in our position. So I wanted some people in the film who could tell a story of conversion um, mm. away from a certain point of view. So that's why I have Steve Watkins, Dwight Ford, Brian Zahn, uh, John Deere, um, mm. who tell really vivid stories. And I, contra- I contrast that with some of the people in the beginning of the film who, uh, you know, Dave Grossman, um, some people who are part of something called Sheepdog Seminars. Um, who really feel they're kind of making biblically based arguments to justify the use of deadly force. Um, and again, these people aren't doing it out of a malicious, uh, intent. They're doing it actually out of a noble intent. They want to protect, they want to, uh, you know, uh, not so much get rid of bad guys, but just they recognize that there's evil in the world and they think it's foolish not to somehow prepare yourself to protect the flock. And so, Mm -hmm. But the question is, I guess, you know, what we get there are these competing values of, of self-preservation and self-sacrifice. And um, ironically, I think sometimes self-sacrifice can ultimately be the thing that leads to self-preservation of the whole. Because if we all pursue, pursue self-preservation, you know, we eventually reach a point of mutually assured destruction because uh, we have the means and um, so it just is all It's all the means they're looking for is this situation. So the question is, what can we do to prevent that from happening? And is there a place for nonviolence in the world? Is nonviolence, like some people think nonviolence is a luxury. And I kind of come against that and say, no, violence is a luxury. Because you have to be powerful to use violence. You have to be rich. Um, poor, weak people can't use violence. They'll get destroyed. Um, And so I think, uh, on the other side, nonviolence is not a luxury because it demands, I mean, you could consider it a luxury if you mean it's tremendously expensive because, um, it is, um, it demands everything from those who pursue it. And, uh, and yet I really stand, you know, alongside Martin Luther King Jr. Who says that, uh, violence is, is not only, uh, immoral, it's also impractical in that it, uh, all it can ever do ultimately is create new and more complicated problems. It can never ultimately solve a problem. Mm. Um, you know, people always want to point to World War II. Oh, you know, shouldn't we have used violence to stop the Nazis? You know, look, at we were able to beat them. But what, you know, the, we went immediately from the uh, World War II into World War III. We just don't call it that. It's the Cold War, which was, uh, you know, tremendous. and We're still in it. And I mean, the the level of violence and the, the, the level of violence that we now can bring against each other uh, is tremendous. So I don't think that World War II necessarily solved any problem. It just led us immediately into a much more complicated problem that we still mm-hmm. can't figure our way out of.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's good. I think one thing that I, I really enjoyed and liked about the film was how you start out with one perspective and kind of almost like you you kept talking about this idea just now of of like a conversion, a transformation. And you kind of, the film itself almost seems like it's a transformation journey in and of itself, like where it starts to where it ends. It kind of has that flow to it, which I think is really nice. Uh, But I remember (laughs) I was sitting there watching the the movie and, and some of the comments that were being made Um, by some of the earlier guests in the show my wife was like what the hell are you watching (laughs) (laughs) not to not to talk poorly about any of the people um, that you had on but uh, some of those things for sure did stand out but I wanted to to ask you um, this is kind of like a a zoomed out question because you talk about how you're also an author so you you write stuff and you've done filmmaking Um, what like what advantages or disadvantage, like, do you find between the two? Like, why make a film about this? Why make Jesus, J-E-S-U-S-A, a film rather than a book? Or like, what, what, what is it about filmmaking that um, is appealing to you?
2: Well, I think that you can um, potentially have a stronger emotional impact in a film. So, I mean, I think if you're trying to impact the way people think about something, Arguments can only go so far. And, and I think that you need to impact people at an emotional level. Like we make decisions based on emotion, largely. Um, we don't tend to make too many purely rational decisions. And so I think a film gives you an opportunity to to hit people on a level that a book can't. I also think that a film can potentially reach more people. Again, going back to um, you know what's happening right now with the whole pandemic. I mean, to look at the epidemic of uh disinformation um which i would say is purposeful spreading of false information on youtube i mean it's funny i mean i love youtube but i've started to just be so suspicious of anything on youtube because of the craziness of it but if you look at um you know what that uh, short uh film uh plandemic did in terms of sheer numbers and so and i'll oftentimes i'll post an article on uh my facebook page and people will respond with a video And so it just seems to be that video is where people are turning for information. And, uh, you know, I, I I don't know if that's good or bad. I think there's probably pluses and minuses to it. So, and yeah, and, uh, you know, doing a, uh, yeah, I, I just think you have a chance to reach a lot more people. You can impact them emotionally and, uh, it gives you a chance to collect a number of different voices, uh, in one place as opposed to just me writing a book in my voice um i can bring in david bentley hart or dana Butler bass or gareth higgins or some of these people and and there's a you know i think that there's um maybe a, a a strength you know to bringing a choir together as opposed to just singing a solo
1: yeah well that's that's really good and so i guess something that also struck me too is as i was watching the film um Every project I've ever done, I've started out thinking that I had all the information I needed. And then as the, as the project moves from the beginning to the middle to the end, at the end of the project, I'm like, wow, well, I know a lot more now than about this. And I, we, we were building a deck for our pool in our backyard yesterday. And huh. we were doing it. And uh, we, we, I went to bed last night. And after we had been struggling with getting the base right, I realized in laying in bed, like, oh my gosh, why didn't we just build it and then... Put the, like put it on the base, like it, it, it makes more sense if you obviously know what we were doing, but <laughs> so as, as you're working through a project, you learn something about what you were doing and how you did it right and the things you did that you wish you could have done differently. And so as you were doing, as you were making this film, was there anything that you learned or like any way that you grew throughout making the film?
2: Yeah, I think that's a good analogy. It's funny, I built a treehouse for my kids about five years ago, and I would—I—I I had no idea what I was doing, but every night I'd lay in bed and sort of plan the next step. Yeah. And uh, it's funny, when you've done something like that, you always think about what you would do differently if you had a chance to start over. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, with a film, uh, yeah, you definitely start out thinking you have a pretty good idea of what this is about, and then you do the research and you realize there's a lot you don't know, but you start to identify who the salient voices are. Like that's the thing I'm always looking for is who's really speaking cogently around these issues, who's taking things, you know, to the next level. And then you go out and interview these folks and you learn a lot during that process. But then the really the film really starts to come together when you're editing it. And um it's yeah, I I like to think that, you know, if a film doesn't deconstruct me, it's not gonna do much for the people watching it. And uh I do find, you know when I get to the end of a film like this, I'm kind of a little bit terrified of some of the conclusions it reaches. Um, And also just realizing the complexity. I think that we all tend to think about these things in an overly simplified way. Um, And things just really seem obvious to us because we're only looking at it from one point of view, but the more points of view you bring into the picture, you know, you realize why experts are always speaking with caveats and they're hesitant and they're, you know they're always footnoting what they say because the minute they make a statement, they can already hear four or five different counters to that statement, and so how are you going to accommodate those into what you're saying so you know this film um, I like to think that it offers a um, a really cogent response to uh, or, or, a really cogent argument in favor of nonviolence but at the same time recognizing that um there, every situation has to be evaluated on its own merits. Um, it's, you know, and that it would be a mistake. That was something I really learned from Chris Hedges reading his work. Chris Hedges is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who's featured in the film. Um, you know, he talks about utopianism as really being one of the universal problems that we face. I just wrote something about this yesterday, this this m- magical silver bullet thinking. And that I think that nonviolence elevated to... Um, you know sort of uh an end-all be-all could be just as dangerous potentially as violence um because we'll start to become very rigid in our thinking and we will start to sacrifice people in favor of an ideal <clears throat> as opposed to you know re trying to be flexible in the situation to try and minimize the amount of harm that we're creating in the world and maximizing the good and and you know that that's where i think we just can't be rigid and and uh you know i think i kind of started off you know, being a bit too much of a crusader for nonviolence. Um, and so that's, this film definitely tempered that, and yet made me even more convinced. It's a hard thing to explain, um, you know, but but not wanting to commit violence in the act of trying to defend uh, nonviolence. Because again, nonviolence isn't an ideal to pursue, be pursued in isolation. Nonviolence is really just an outflow of loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. And it's very difficult to love your neighbor while you're in the midst of you know, doing John Wick on your neighbor, Um, even though John Wick is maybe doing it to protect someone. I don't think he ever is. But even though you may be doing it to protect someone, um, uh, are you really protecting that someone if by taking out the bad guy, you build a resentment um, and an anger in the friends of the bad guy who are now going to amass their resources to come out in a in a way that is is going to be terrifying you know like think about any mob movie right you take out one person they take out your family you go take out their village they you know and, and where does it end
1: yeah
0: yeah that's that's such a that's so helpful and i can relate to that in in a variety of ways i guess marty might describe me as a crusader for nonviolence. <laughs> um or this this idea of, of rigid thinking. Okay. Uh but and so there were there are definitely aspects of the film that helped me confront that and wrestle with it within myself. Um especially because uh so currently um my best friend who's the best man you know in my wedding all this kind of stuff he's living with my wife and I temporarily um he is a police officer and so he knows my thoughts and positions and stances on on nonviolence um my friend is uh very much so a christian and we have these really good conversations but i've alf- i've often wrestled with that like what do i do this is my best friend and he is a police officer um now what makes it you know even a little bit more interesting is he's also a minority so i know a lot of people talk about police brutality and and that kind of stuff um but then you throw you know, my buddy Brandon into the mix and he's a minority. He's a police officer. He's a Christian. um, He's trying to protect people. But at the same time, like he knows that every day when he goes to work, I pray that he never has to pull the trigger on his gun, um, which he has not had to do yet in his three years of service. So like wrestling with those ideas is, is so tricky and difficult for me.
2: Well, I think that's, yeah, I I think that is where the rubber meets the road. You know, Jimmy Meeks, who's part of, well, he's the head of Sheepdog Seminars. who's featured in the film. And what Sheepdog Seminars does is they try to prepare faith-based organizations for uh, the possibility of an active shooter event, or they try and protect uh, or help, you know, places uh, protect children from being abducted and that sort of thing. But he was a cop in Dallas, Texas, which is a pretty tough place to be a cop for 40 years. uh, And he never pulled his gun and i think that's pretty remarkable that he um believes that he's fully u- he's fully authorized by god to use deadly force he was fully authorized by the state to use deadly force but he he's somehow always found a way to avoid using it and i think that um that's that's an interesting thing to think about um i one thing i would say <clears throat> a police officer is in a better position than a soldier uh in that a police officer has a lot of discretion in terms of how they uh, behave when they're on duty, whereas a soldier is part of a chain of command. The command is given and the soldier must follow the command. So I would really caution Christians to think twice about joining the military because you are abdicating your right to exercise your conscience by being part of that chain of command without facing you know, some pretty harsh consequences, especially if you find yourself in the heat of battle. Um, A police officer is in a different position. Like I said, they are also have, of course, all sorts of obligations they have to follow, but they have a ton of discretion. And so um, just because you're authorized to use deadly force doesn't mean you ever have to use it. Um, And I would always encourage police officers or anybody who's in that position, you know, um, violence is one of the problems that Walter Wink says about violence is that we're often fumbling for the trigger before we've had a chance to consider other options, because it, violence gives us the illusion, um, a gun gives us the illusion of having the most possible control over a situation. Um, but I think it's actually the opposite, that the minute you a gun enters the situation, you've just escalated the situation in a way that becomes uh, far deadlier than it, it might be otherwise. And so, um, yeah, I would just encourage people to even if you've been given that authorization is to think create creatively about how you could solve problems in other ways.
1: Yeah. I, I really liked what Greg Boyd had to say in the film, you know, where he was saying he had no qualms about calling the police uh, to handle a situation like that. If, you know, there was a intruder into his home and force was needed in order to remove that person. Uh, you know, he was saying, you know, he, he turned that to the cross and said, you know, when Jesus was murdered on the cross he looked foolish that he didn't save himself off the cross he said you know and, and I love that he kind of turned that to himself and said you know if I was in the home based on my own convictions I would rather be foolish as Jesus was foolish on the cross than be the one that pulls the trigger to 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 end this other person's life uh, and that was a really interesting perspective even when we had Greg on the show before and I've been reading his books I know that that's his perspective but hearing it coming from him in that way framed with the rest of the people that you interviewed for the, for the documentary. Uh, it was really powerful to hear that as a, as a, as an, as an opposing idea. So.
2: Yeah. Well, it's a tough thing to balance because sometimes I think like, <clears throat> for instance, we lock our doors at night because, uh, uh, it's, uh, why not deter? I think deterrence can be a blessing to somebody who might want to bring violence so that the threat of force could potentially prevent them from acting on their violent inclinations. Um, And and again, not that locking my home is a threat of force, but at least it's a discouragement. It's going to make, it's going to take, you know, a lot of work. Would I bring force against somebody who who invades my home? I mean, at that point, yeah, I, I think that the main thing, you know, it's funny, we interviewed Preston Sprinkle in the film, and he walks through a home invasion situation which I wasn't able to put in the film because it just was too long to kind of fit in but he kind of tore that situation apart uh, basically showing that any use potential use of force by you in that situation number one you're relying on all kinds of assumptions that are completely unfounded and probably what you're going to end up doing is escalating the situation into something deadly that never was going to be because think about somebody who's armed who comes into your home most of the time what is their intent it's usually a property crime they want to get in they want to get out and that they never they're probably carrying a weapon to threaten and intimidate to get themselves out of the situation Um, but the minute you bring out a weapon what do you force them to do you force them Mm -hmm. into a situation that now is has a much greater potential of becoming deadly because instead of trying to counter with Uh, non-violence you're trying to escalate the violence and so they're forced to escalate in response and so that's one of the things that we don't think about we all think about ourselves as like some kind of Jason Bourne you know tactical uh (laughs) expert you know and we're we're no even somebody who's spent a lot of time at the shooting range for instance you I mean think about a soldier who trains over and over and over again and the minute they find themselves under enemy fire so many people just first thing they do is shit their pants you know I mean it's uh it's a completely different situation. And so, uh, you know, trying to bring violence into the picture, never mind the moral uh implications. I think it just is stupid for most of us.
0: <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. <laughs> I think too, sometimes like <laughs> what kind of person are you that you think people are trying to break into your house to murder you? Like,
2: yeah. <laughs> what what, kind what of, are the st- What are the stats on that? Yeah, mean, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, I, and I remember a, f- a
1: friend saying to me something like, "In order to, in order to stay up on being, like a, at least a, a decent shot with a firearm, even if it's just like a handgun or something like that, you need to spend like, you know, th- ideally you'd spend five, six days a week firing the gun. You know, maybe a hundred rounds a day." To really, to really be, you know, like okay, like if I if I pick this up, it's natural for me to defend, you know, instead of being like, oh, like I, I forgot how to use this thing, or the safety's on, or it's in the gun chest tonight, and I don't know where the key is, and all that stuff, and so it becomes yeah. this idea where like it it's it's more so to make you feel good about the fact that you have it in case you ever need it, right? And, and so, I, but but it was interesting to me to think about that in the context of watching the documentary that, like, you know. If you really want to be an expert at this, you know it, it there's there's a lot of work that goes into it you can't just you can't just go to the store, buy the gun, get the ammunition, own it, and then say, "Okay, well, that's it. if I ever need to use this, I'm prepared it yeah. a much sort of like you're talking about it's a much bigger investment into that, and like like sprinkle was talking about, you know the the more likely scenario is, and the small chance that this person is breaking in to harm you, the escu- the escalation of that. Uh, is probably something you're not prepared to do. But they are because for them, it is survival. It is if I don't get out of here, I'm either going to be killed or be put in prison. But that's mm-hmm. not going to happen to me if you break into my home. Um, so there's there's a different level of like what they need to do in order for that to, you know, to for them to be out of there safely or whatever.
2: Right. And yeah, no, I agree. Totally. And, uh, like the stakes are higher for them, but I think too, on the moral angle, I mean, ultimately what are we called to is we're called to, you know, do good to those who would hurt us. And, and, um, uh, I think that in that situation, obviously you want to protect your family and yourself from being killed, but, but there's also a feeling of wanting to save that person from, whatever led them to think this was the best possible use of their time and resources, you know, that obviously people don't do that sort of thing because they're, you know, living happy, contented lives. I mean, they're, they're at a point of desperation and, and there are stories of people in that moment able to convert people away from their intentions. And, um, and so, you know, there's a, we're called to love indiscriminately and, um, you know, we're not called, and this is a hard thing to grasp, but we're not called to love our family more than the person invading our home. We're we're called to love them, as we love ourselves. And so, um, again, I think that the thing that nonviolence is just sort of a natural outgrowth of pursuing the greater good for everybody. You know that we, you know that that that's yeah, and it's just again, it's very difficult to do that if we're, uh, you know, trying to yeah if we're if we're packing guns you know to mm-hmm. to do that and again i i grew up on a farm we had guns we did not own guns for protection we owned guns uh to basically kill pests and and mostly for recreation i mean uh, and then there was a bit of hunting that went on but yeah it's a, so i'm not anti gun at all um i'm just uh i think that the minute you start thinking that you're going to have this thing for for protection um the world that creates uh you know is uh it's a scary world yeah. because,
1: yeah. Josh, we had someone else on the podcast before that talked about owning <laughs> guns on the farm. Yeah, uh, Shane
0: Claiborne. Film, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, our buddy Shane Claiborne. But what, when, you're, when you're talking about this, this and the, the idea of morals, I think where it really comes to, to pass for me is, and you, you showed this clip in, in your documentary, and it's a, a clip that every time I see it, it literally, it churns my stomach. It makes me sick. And it's uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. um, When he is encouraging students during a chapel service to arm themselves so they can quote, kill those Muslims. If they ever come here, like that is insane. That blows my mind. And I remember um, Marty and I used to work at a church together. That's kind of the the connection for us. And there was a, a day in the office when the head pastor was like, Hey, uh, we're looking into getting like security measures. Like we want to put together an armed security team here for the church that if there was ever something were to happen, our armed security team would take out the threat, whatever. I was so mad that day. <laughs> mm. <laughs> asked Marty, I told him, I said, the day that that policy is implemented is the day I resign mm. there. There, I can't see it like the Jesus is nonviolent. His ethic is nonviolent. I don't think that can be argued. I don't think that can be debated. I think you have to go outside of Jesus to get to a place where you can justify the use of, of killing, um, which I mean, Brian Zond in your film talks about like, you can't use Joshua to save you from Jesus. And I think yeah. that's really good. Um, but that like that just wrecks me. I think There and I've been I've been accused before. Like people have literally told me I've I've been in disagreements and they're like, well, you're a shitty pastor because I'm so I'm a I'm a high school and young adult pastor and they're like, you're shit pastor. If 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 somebody comes in and is going to shoot and kill your students, you're promoting nonviolence. And I'm like, yeah, because that's (laughs) Jesus. My ethics are built there, so it's such a messy thing. And I think the moral argument really gets shifted up when you bring it into church. I think there is, I don't know. I don't think we should plaster signs on the church door that says like no guns here. Cause that's almost like asking for trouble. Um, but I think there is something about organizing like your own little militia to protect your church. That just doesn't seem right. It doesn't sit well with me. Um, I don't know. I, I said a lot about nothing, <laughs> but
2: <laughs> yeah, well it's, it's a tough one because uh you know, uh, Carl Chin, who was uh, interviewed in the film, he's part of mm-hmm. Sheepdog Seminars. He was, uh, on the, he was the head of the security staff, I believe, or at the very least, he was, a, he was uh, involved in the security staff at New Life Church when there was the active shooter event. Um, Ted Haggard was a pastor at the time. It was a shooting event that started at, the, uh, <clears throat> at a YWAM base in Arvada, and then it continued uh, at New Life, and I think there was uh, three or four people killed. Mm. and he was part of the armed security team that actually stopped the shooter. Um, it was at one point Carl standing between the shooter and, a, and a, a sanctuary full of people, and then someone else jumped out and shot the guy. And so definitely, in, you know, and Carl was also part of a, a hostage taking at Focus on the Family. So he, I think he would speak differently, you know, in terms of, you know, what would have happened if that shooter would have got into that sanctuary, And he was armed to the teeth. Sure. Um, It's a tough thing to say that it will. Yeah, it's 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 a tough thing, because are you going to tell them that you would have preferred that this shooter would have gone into the sanctuary and killed, you know, 200 people?
0: Yeah, absolutely not.
2: You know, it's a and so it's it's a tough thing to find a solution to. And but I think the other thing, too, is that um, uh, I think sometimes we deal with these situations too far down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as Gareth Higgins puts it, you know, the, the day Hitler rolls into Poland is not the day to talk about what should we do about the Nazis. Um, <laughs> it's like, why on earth was he able to recruit an army of Christians to aid him in what he's up to? You know, cause mm-hmm. you could say probably to a man, every man, every soldier in his army was a professing Christian. Why on earth were they teaming up with him? And, and the same thing with the Holocaust that followed, um, and uh, why weren't Christians around the world taking in Jews that were trying to flee Germany, they were turning them back instead, you know, there's so many things along the line before we ever get to an active shooter situation, that we could be doing to actively promote nonviolence, and not just that, but to actively mitigate against the things that cause people to turn toward violence. Um, you know, and so I think that too often we get distracted by these debates of, oh, should, use, should Christians use violence or not, when we should be actively engaged in trying to just transform our little part of the world and mm-hmm. to help the people who are around us. Um, you know, I, one of the best things actually was just on a Zoom call recently with somebody. Uh, it's a movement out of the Mennonites, actually in Canada, called Circles of Concern. And so something that they noticed is the recidivism rate for sex offenders was extremely high, uh, specifically pedophiles, because they're such a pariah when they get released from prison. Nobody wants to have anything to do with them. Nobody wants to hire them and that sort of thing that they are very quick to reoffend because they're not accountable to anyone. And so what this group did was they formed circles of community around these released offenders. And they were able to reduce recidivism rates, uh, I can't remember, but by orders of magnitude, because these people were being released from prison and were finding a way to reintegrate into the community and to be accountable to people. And so this is not a bunch of people navel-gazing over whether or not Christians can use violence. It's people recognizing someone who is prone to re-offend and coming up with a creative solution to help them um, not do that. I think that's the kind of thing that we should be doing all over the place. And what we're going to find is that violence um, begins to go away because um, we're helping those people who find themselves in a position where they feel compelled to use violence.
1: Hmm. Yeah. And, and, and you know, in the situation Josh is talking about is very similar to what you're talking about, where, you know, we were reacting to the situation that happened in Sutherland Springs, Texas as a church, you know, right. saying, okay, well, right. this just happened. And so what are we doing? Right. And uh, what was interesting is we actually, the first step we took was we called the police department to see what it would cost for us to have a police officer at the service. And um, there weren't any available. They were all, it was basically we post it and uh, a police officer can choose to take the posting or not. And we'll let you know if someone takes the posting Uh, And no one would no one would take it up. And so it was sort of this idea where as a church, we're saying, like, you know, do we just have our own security force? Uh, Because, you know, if the police aren't willing to be there. And so it's it's this it's this constant, you know, but for us, it was very much a reaction to something that had already occurred somewhere else. And uh, I think I think what you're getting at, too, and what Josh is getting at, too, is that, you know, being being the people that, you know, are are helping to change the dynamic of the community around us um, and change what people view. I think that makes it really easy at that point then to say, we are a people of nonviolence. This is, this is the ethic we choose to follow, not only because it's what we truly believe our savior was, but then at the same time, we look at this and we say, well, you know, we're, we're living this out in our community. We're doing what we can to meet people where they're at. And we, and also recognizing that we live in a fallen world that, you know, I mean, people are who they are, and Satan has a reach on this world that, you know, we, we don't always necessarily uh, fully grasp, I think. And so I think we're sometimes, we have to remember that there, there's a part of that too, that the fallenness of our world brings that nature to where we are.
2: Yeah. Well, and you know, the thing I learned from the sheepdog guys too, is that there's lots of nonviolent things you can do to secure your facility. Like one of Dave Grossman, uh, who often speaks of these events, he's a former army ranger. He's like taught at West point. He's like a Marine or not Marines Marine, but he's like a soldier soldier. And, you know, he says, the first thing you learn is, is protect your, secure your perimeter. And, uh, so in other words, um, in terms of, you know, once everyone's in your church and things are underway, I mean, you need to, the building needs to be secured. There shouldn't be any way in or out of the building that's not monitored. And you know, it's funny, we were going to film in the midst of making this film after uh, dealing with the sheepdog guys and we went into one church where we're supposed to be filming. We wandered around inside the building. We could hear voices, but we couldn't find people. But we'd been in there for like five or seven minutes before we even found an individual. We shouldn't have ever been able to get into that building. Just two guys carrying big cases full of stuff. I mean, it, it just, it made no sense. So there's lots of nonviolent things you can do to secure your building and to make things safer um, uh, without actually bringing any weapons into the picture. Um, Mm. But the second thing I would say a more radical idea is to say, (laughs) get rid of the building um, and and use whatever, all these resources that you're investing in the building and protecting the building, invest them in the community around the building instead. And, um, and, and turn, you know, why does your church need all that stuff to function like uh, you know just radically rethink why are we congregating? And you think about how much energy is put into a one hour or two hour service every Sunday uh, and how many resources are put into facilitating that that could be spent actually doing the work of the church in the community and I think this whole pandemic thing has maybe opened people 's eyes to that that, that yeah. th- there 's so much stuff that 's sucking and sucking and sucking, but all of our time and money and resources, but why not just, do we, you know, how much of that do we really need? I think that maybe a lot of people are, I'm sure realizing that personally. um, But I think maybe churches need to do a think on that as well, because uh, yeah, I mean uh, you congregate, number one, you make yourself a target and people are also going to be resentful if you're congregating in this nice shiny building and, and there's people all around it that are suffering.
0: Yeah, that's <laughs> that's so good. That's really good. And I like uh, I like too just the idea that there's we we can be more creative. Like I think part of part of my issue is I think pulling the trigger on a firearm is not very creative. No. That's that seems to be the easy way out, so to speak. So that that idea of using nonviolent ways to you know secure your perimeter and things like that, um, I'm all for. And also too, like I think. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think there's a difference between like for example, Marty and I, the church that we were at was in Florida um in Florida it's much easier to have a concealed carry permit than it is here in Maryland in Maryland, unless you 're a cop or a former military, good luck um it's not lost on me that there were congregants that had concealed carry, but in my opinion, that was their prerogative, right? They can make that choice. I think there's a difference between. Knowing that there are congregants who have that, versus the person in charge saying we are going to enlist you to you know do yeah. carry out these violent acts. I don't know. I think it's it's so complex and so messy, like you're talking about. And I know at the church that I'm at now, we have a high population of um, former uh, invades, inmates, inmates, con- you know, recovering uh, convicts that if we were to place police cars out front of our building to protect us, good luck getting that population of our church there. They're not Mm -hmm. gonna feel welcome. So it's such a a messy thing that I think, I really like what what you're saying about, we're thinking too far down the line. We have to step back and how can we prevent these things from even becoming an idea that someone has in the first place is so helpful.
2: Well, you have to to kind of do both, right? I mean, because you have to, I mean, you have a Sunday school full of kids and you definitely have to, what can you do to make sure that they're in a secure situation? But at the same time, I mean, yeah, uh, what can you do to uh, ameliorate the problems. And I think what you bring up about, you know, certain people would have an aversion to going to a church where there's a cop in the, in the parking lot. I think that's a really good point. And somebody brought that up recently that, you know, we're so busy trying to solve for X that we forget to solve for Y mm-hmm. and that Y is the thing that often leads to the compounding unintended, unintended consequences, you know? And so, yeah, that police officer in the parking lot is a really good example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, because what is the Unintended message that you're sending out by having that guy every Sunday, you know, out there in the parking lot. It's, uh, you know, number the number one message is that we're afraid, and uh, you know that's seems to be the thing that that, um, yeah, that that you're sending out, and is that the message you want to send out? Um, and also, I mean, police officers have better things to do, you would think, than um, you know, sit around a parking lot for an hour every Sunday, that there's all kinds of active policing that they can do to help mitigate uh, all sorts of things.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, I think I think within the idea and the context of the film, I I, I think I just was, I was very grateful that this was put into um, a film that and put into a, a medium in a creative way. Um, like, you know, for someone like my family and I, we all sat and watched together. Um, it was It was put together in a way that really honestly went and really went right towards the the meat of what it was you were trying to say, but also communicated it in a way that was that made sense to everybody. Mm. And I think this is the, that's the the trick with this idea, with this with this communication of nonviolence is that it's not necessarily as easy to say, you know, with just saying, well, look at, you know, here's all this evidence. We shouldn't be doing this. And then you, but then there's all those counter arguments. But I didn't feel like very much was missed with what you were trying to say. I felt like the different perspectives that, you know, we had the different people coming from different angles and coming from different backgrounds and from different faith backgrounds. um, That to me, it it put me in a position of saying like, wow, like, I don't really feel like I have a counter argument to the concept, to the idea. Um, And then you even, I, I really loved how the film ends Um, with the nonviolence march in Washington, D.C. And kind of seeing, you know, the first thing I thought of was these people that are around the film, you know, that that are not necessarily in the film, but, or or even marching, you know, what are their thoughts about nonviolence as compared to like now, if they sit down and watch this film. So I personally really appreciated that, you know, the argument seemed, it wasn't even an argument, I guess I would say. It seemed like it just was the right thing. Um, so I I personally um really appreciated not only the the filmmaking portion, uh, but then the like obviously the post production aspect of the editing job of uh, different aspects of the history at the beginning, getting the perspectives of different people, but then ending it with showing that this is a real thing that real people are doing. Uh that was something that really struck me well. And so I I just want to say thank you. Your the editing job was was great and um it it really went right at the heart of what I think needs to be said about this
2: issue. Oh, good. I appreciate that. You know, it's, it's funny. We, uh, we kind of, uh, we're back and forth on the March in the sense that it's, <clears throat> you know, we we're hoping for 500 people uh, that would show up. I'm not sure if there was maybe a hundred or so. And, you know, part of it is it almost looks a little bit pathetic, you know, this small group of people, but I think that's part of the point, you know, it actually, to me, becomes a strength that, why is this group so small, you know, that is marching for these things? Why isn't everybody in this March? Um, you know, as Gareth Higgins says, we all believe in nonviolence. I can't go across the street and punch my neighbor in the face without getting (laughs) charged with assault. everyone would think I was an idiot. If that's how I tried to solve a dispute I was having with my neighbor. So how many people do you have to get in a room until it becomes okay to go over and beat up those other guys? that you don't like, you know, at what point does that become a legitimate way to try and solve a problem? I don't think we could ever arrive at a number. Um, but somehow we, we sort of accept it. And so, yeah, that March, um, yeah, I think that the fact that there's, there's not a lot of people, um, it's, it's almost a call for other people, you know, come and fill up this space, you know, that, you know, come in and, um, and join this movement, you know? So, but anyway, I appreciate that feedback. It's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, you you work on a film and you kind of go with your instincts and and try and do what you know think you think is going to work uh, rhetorically and lo- logically and that sort of thing. But you never know until people start to watch it. So I appreciate yeah. that.
1: I I also just I'm not sure if Josh you were going to say this. So sorry if I'm stealing your thunder, but um, I really liked how at the end of the film, because it, it wasn't the theme of the movie at all, um, but you bring in this this the concept of race. Um, and what what was so beautiful about that to me was um, they brought up the so strong and striking idea that Martin Luther King promoted nonviolence. And so much was done through Martin Luther King's efforts, you know, to, to push America out of this racial bias. Uh, now, obviously, we're nowhere near done with that. I mean, we're We had a conversation earlier today about racism in the church. I mean, literally, where we're at with that and how there's still work to be done. Uh, But it was so great to me to see that aspect, too, that it wasn't missed, um, because that's such a a strong part of where our country, I think, there's this, I mean, there's such a strong tension there between this racism idea, and I don't know how strong that is in Canada is compared to what it is in the U.S. But, you know, it seems like it's every other day that there's something, you know, there's, you know, every week there's some new person, you know, that's been shot or this fight or something like that. And you start to wonder when is this, when is this ever going to end? But where do we find this nonviolent solution to it? And uh, so that was really beautiful that that was brought into it for me as well
2: well and that was kind of a happy accident like dwight ford who's uh to me the heart and soul of that segment is he was somebody we actually never intended to interview we actually uh were uh we interviewed his wife kit because she's part of Benny, which is a nonviolent group and she said well you might want to talk to my husband he's a he's a king scholar i'm like oh really definitely and so i didn't i knew almost nothing about him when i sat down to interview him find out not only is a martin is he a martin luther king scholar studied at harvard he uh also, was like a Marine who saw action in the first Gulf war and uh, just had some pretty strong feelings on violence and nonviolence. And, you know, when I asked him the question, cause he talked about, you know, he's dressed in a suit and bow tie and that's what he wears every day. And yet he still gets profiled and pulled over all the time. And when I asked yeah. him how that affected him and his response to me was just, uh, I think it's one of the most powerful moments in the film because it's not even anger anymore. It's just exhaustion. Yeah. You know, it's just when will this end? Mm-hmm. I mean, when will people accept me as a human being? And and I think the the reason why race I think has to be addressed because it's the source as you see, so much bias. Um, but also um, I wanted to feature Dwight because here's somebody who is a target. Uh, Number one, he's a hero. He should be considered a hero. He's risked his life for the nation in battle. And um, he now, his whole life is devoted to um, improving and restoring his community. That's what he focuses on through his church. And yet he's the object of racism all the time. But he refuses to respond in kind. He refuses to dehumanize uh, the police officers who bring this against him. Instead, he invites them to his church. Um, he refuses to give in to what must be so tempting um, is to give in to the hatred and the anger that's brought against him. And I think that that's just such a model for us is not to imitate the violence that's being brought against us. And, and so that's, to me, it just seemed like a natural thing to talk about. And I think Dwight does such a good job of, of uh, talking about it. And, you know, as far as Canada and, and the U.S., we definitely have our issues with racism up here, but we have a very such a different history than you guys do. Um, uh, you know, we definitely, you know, in terms of how we treated the Aboriginal population here, it was it was bad and continues to be. But it's just it's different. I mean, you you guys uh, just particularly with the issue of slavery, which we didn't really have up here. Um, it uh, that definitely casts things in a different direction. And The fact that the South didn't, you know concede the war willingly you know and uh yeah. you know there's a lot of deep deep resentment still and uh so that's yeah something uh you guys are obviously still working your way through
0: yeah that's it's such a huge part of it too and i think i i agree with you too that 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 was one of the most powerful um points in the film as well i i remember that vividly that and the other point that stands out to me uh, greatly was, I, forgive me, I forget his name, but the the former SEAL that you yeah. had on.
2: Steve Watkins, yeah.
0: Steve Watkins. So Steve describes this moment where uh, they're out on a recon mission. They stumble uh, upon a group of Iraqis on a beach uh, and an, they're told an airstrike is coming and make sure you get like a mile offshore because it's going to be big. And in that moment, he like reflected on realizing these are human beings like these are iraqi soldiers that grew up in a specific context they're just trying to follow orders the same way i am they're trying to be the best soldiers they can be they're human beings and like it it jacked him up (laughs) it messed him up and that those both of those two moments are the ones that have played over and over and over again in my head Mm -hmm. um as really big things and i think there is uh strength to their stories um, because you know you you I don't know if you're familiar with the work of like Jonathan Haidt Jonathan Haidt oh yeah Um, yeah I love his stuff and he talks about if you want to bring change like who who are the right people to get to promote things and so like if you want to talk about um, gun violence for example do you go out and get some like celebrity or do you get a former marine do you get a head NFL football coach because it helps people think differently and so those hearing those stories from people who actually have served time have served their country have seen battle it, it, it brings a special element to the film itself because it's it's no longer an outside looking in kind of thing but it's, it's you know because it's easy to write it off as like oh you just hate the military you just hate whatever but it's like no Mm. these people here that are inside it just it brings a whole new layer of of depth so i really appreciate that
2: yeah no i think it definitely brings credibility because you can't just write them off right um and uh that they actually form their point of view in the midst of you know serving the country and i think you know someone else too we haven't really talked about too much is preston sprinkle i mean yeah preston Uh, the guys at the beginning of the film, you know, r- really trying to make a biblical case for their view that violence is justified, not just justified, but actually a good thing. Um, and they say that, you know, I, why do people, you know, they read the Bible, but they don't understand what's in its pages. But here we have Preston trying to teach, trying to be really con- consistent with what the Bible teaches about violence and in the process, accidentally converting himself away from violence and just kind of being stunned at that. And I think that's a powerful story, too, because, again, he set out trying to be fair and trying to be objective and just having to concede um, that uh, he's he had been wrong. And I think, again, you think about how do we form a belief, um, you know, uh, experience is ultimately where the rubber meets the road. And so, you know, it's hard to argue against somebody's experience. You can argue against somebody's argument, but the question is how does that argument cash out in the real world? And um, I think that's, you know, that's why I think, you know, testimony, personal testimony definitely, uh, you know, from the right person can be powerful. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's the the power of storytelling. I think it's such a, yeah. a beautiful thing. Yeah. Uh, well, Marty, do you have any, any more questions you wanted to ask? You know, we're, um, you know, we want to be fair to, to your time, Kevin, so we should probably, wrap, start to wrap things up. But Marty, do you have anything else you would like to uh, put forth Or
1: No, I think, I think this has been a great conversation. I, I really appreciated the film. Um, but you know, out, outside of the film, you mentioned that you're, that, that you're also, also an author. So where, where else can people find you, Kevin? What, what kind of works uh, that you've done in the past or you're doing in the, in, in the near future? Would you like our listeners to know about and push people towards?
2: Sure. Well, I'll tell you the, for the film, if you want to, right now, we're only available on Vimeo, uh, but we will be available on Amazon, Google, uh, iTunes and that we've just been delayed due to the pandemic, um, in terms of, uh, getting all on all those platforms, but, uh, you can keep track of us on jesusafilm.com. And then as far as my own writing, my own writing is, uh, you know, radically different. I actually have a a best-selling children's uh, novel series. Um, that's just fun fiction uh for middle grade readers uh but anyway you can check out the whole other side of me i also have a comic book series about a immortal pig Um, but uh you can check me out at kevinmillerxi.com that's my author page
0: kevinmillerxi.com
2: yeah awesome well do you
0: do you have anything uh and maybe this is not a fair question but do you have anything uh you know any new projects you've been working on or anything in the the works that you're excited for
2: I don't have a film project going right now I have uh, I'm this whole pandemic has made me pretty interested in conspiracy theories I've been spending a lot of time um, kind of uh, dealing with that on Facebook and doing a lot of writing based around that um, and engagement and that sort of thing so if I were to make another film I might want to focus a little bit on on epistemology but I'm not sure I don't have an active film project in the pipeline right now and considering the fact there was like a you know, uh, uh, I guess we'll say an eight year time lag or no, actually I started a six year time lag between Hellbound and JSEOSA. I don't know uh, when I'm going to embark on another film. These things are tough because they don't make a lot of money. So you really have to find people who are willing to invest who are investing in you and investing in the issue. They're not really necessarily looking for financial gain, but I'm working on my next novel right now. So that's uh, that's something I'm focused on right now
0: sweet that's awesome man well i've i've appreciated uh all of the the conspiracy theory stuff that you've been putting out on your facebook page i've enjoyed reading that and um thought it's been super helpful so thank you for that yeah (laughs) good great all right man well thank you again uh so much for your time today we'll be sure to i mean we'll link hellbound we'll link uh uh your author page all that kind of stuff um in the show notes so people can find it um yeah so thank you again for your time and uh, listeners as always go caps
1: and go blackhawks and then go
0: oilers as well
2: all right yeah well thanks guys i appreciate the interest
0: yeah thanks kevin peace thank you
2: okay uh...